Hey everybody and welcome to our newest project for first responder wellness, No One Fights Alone, an in-depth conversation about mental health and addiction in the first responder space. We're joined by your host, Austin Pedersen. Welcome everybody back to another episode of No One Fights Alone. I think that we have um, some special guests here today. Uh, I have with me uh, Danny Warner, who is the executive director of Chateau Recovery, and I also have Mr. Ben Pearson, the clinical director of Chateau Recovery. Uh, and so Chateau Recovery uh, is a facility that specializes in treating first responders uh, for mental health and PTSD. Uh, and so I think that I want to open it up to Danny first to talk about what Chateau is and kind of you know what what their main focus is with with first responders and then we'll we'll go over to Ben and maybe talk about just the the clinical overview and why Chateau does what it does what it focuses on and and how it helps first responders so Daniel open it up to you thanks Austin I'm excited to be here uh, Chateau Recovery we've been around about 10 years and we are located in Midway Utah which is uh, up in the Rocky Mountains, it's about uh, 20 minutes outside of Park City, Utah, uh, nestled right up against the mountains in a beautiful location, right on a golf course, uh, but just a nice, peaceful, serene setting for people to be going through this. We, um, like I said, we've been here about 10 years, and about five years ago, we realized that the program that we've created is uh, a little bit different than what's typically out there, and is uh, specifically well suited for treating first responders and so we pivoted at that time and started tailoring our program for first responders and more specifically to address trauma and Ben will get into what that program consists of but we we started to see the need for programs that were were able to treat first responders specifically and provide an environment that was not only culturally competent but was able to to meet their needs so um, we for about the last five years, we've been really focused on, on developing that program. We're a little bit smaller facility, just 16 beds, a little bit more boutique, but we found that that really lends itself well to being able to provide the environment where these men and women feel safe and comfortable to be able to do the work that they, they need to do. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, I think smaller facilities, um, you know, they, they have the capability to focus more individually. Uh, instead of as you know a massive group with with 30 to 40 people uh, have you seen the need over the last three years uh, really increase for first responders uh, I'm not sure that, that the need has increased but the awareness of the need has definitely increased right I think they finally the conversation started to shift and people are recognizing that we need to be addressing these things. We need to be providing opportunities for first responders to talk about it and to get help uh, so that they can stay on the job. Uh, I think the need has always been there, but I think the conversation has, has not, people haven't felt comfortable having that conversation and, and being able to go out and to get those needs addressed. But finally, I think there's kind of a groundswell uh, in different departments and throughout the country to finally start to say, hey, we need to be talking about this and we need to be preemptively getting people help before they get to that point where the wheels start coming off. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, well, uh, we talked about it in the last episode that uh, a lot of departments are reactive instead of proactive. 
do you think that that has shifted at all in the last few years, which is there you start to see a little bit more proactivity instead of a crisis call or, or things like that? I think we are we're starting to see that. I think for a good portion of, of the country that is not gotten there yet. But I think that reactivity, uh, that reaction to it has started to say, hey, let's let's see if we can get upstream a little bit and start to get this addressed before it becomes a crisis. I think we're starting to see that. And I think we're seeing departments uh, start to ask those questions and say, hey, how do we do that? I think it's pretty early on and people are, are hungry to figure out what that looks like. But I, I feel like we're at this curious phase, but people got more questions than answers right now. Yeah. No, definitely. Uh, and so we'll leave the, the clinical portion to Ben, but I think that uh, I wanted you to chat a little bit about uh, kind of that non-clinical portion of Chateau as far as, you know, nutrition, you know, recreational activities, um, you know, maybe some non-evidence-based things that Chateau, you know, supports and supplies for their clients when they when they come and, and stay residentially. Sure. Well, one of the... the, the the benefits of going to a residential program and one of the opportunities we have in providing residential treatment is we got them 24-7. We can control all the variables. And although we have a really intensive evidence-based clinical aspect of the program, um, you know, anywhere from like uh, close to 35 hours of that each week, because we have them full-time, we have the opportunity to be able to provide a lot of different other types of interventions uh, that although they may not be deemed exactly clinical, are really, really do a good job in helping not only to build trust, but to, to start to prep the soil, to break down barriers, to, to help them get to a spot where they're, they're willing and able to go to where they need to clinically. So we feel strongly about diet and nutrition, so we're educating on, on what that looks like. We're feeding them really well. We're trying to provide a lot of other opportunities around mindfulness and meditation and yoga, um, some things that are a little less traditional, like some uh, some sweat lodge, some like uh, Lakota tradition sweat lodge. We do something called Wim Hof breathing, where every week they they do this kind of hyper oxygenating their system and get in an ice bath. Uh, some things like some shamanic drumming, some different types of art therapy. Um, and some kind of breath work. These things that someone might, might wonder what this has to do with treatment, they're all kind of ancillary that really does a good job in, in helping not only help them feel safer, can, uh, for them to connect with each other, start to trust each other more, but it really helps allow for when they get in those clinical sessions, when they get in their individual sessions, they are more prepared to be able to go deep. Yeah, and and I I know Ben will touch on this a little bit later, but um, you know what have you seen uh, from from your opinion? You know, a lot of first responders come into treatment and they've never done anything like what you just talked about, and that's you know the breath work, the yoga, the meditation. Uh, you know what what is the difference from when they arrive in their mindset in in those practices, and then when they leave. Oh, it, it's, it's pretty fascinating and cool to be able to see someone come and say, well, you know, that's just not me. I don't do those kind of things. And they come and they come and they're willing to engage with it. And by the time they leave, those are some of the things they connect most with, you know, uh, being able to quiet the mind, being able to, to, to sit quietly and to be able to start to focus in a little bit different manner. Um, 
I get I get a lot that will they're not interested in doing yoga or meditation, but by the time they leave, that that's one of their very favorite parts. Uh, one of the really cool things is the the Wim Hof breathing that we do. Uh, after they leave here, I we get we get phone calls and pictures back of them who have uh, gone home, purchased their own horse trough, and are doing ice baths in their basement or their their backyard. So it's it's kind of cool to see that propagate out. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's, I mean, especially over the last year, you know, in just, you know, if I uh, am transporting someone to the airport or something like that after their stay, Wim Hof uh, has been a huge hit, you know, buying horse troughs in their own house and and doing those cold plunges uh, and, you know, continuing, continuing that work. Uh, Well, thank you, Danny. I uh, I know we'll keep chatting a little bit, but I want to introduce Ben. Uh, and you know, Ben, I want to open up a conversation about, uh, you know, why first responders seek treatment, uh, from your, your clinical view, uh, kind of where they're at when they first come in and then, you know, what some of the goals of Chateau specifically are while they're here, uh, once they leave, you know, that kind of, uh, story there. So, um, I just want to open it up to you and kind of see an insider view of, of some people's experience here. Cool. Thanks and uh, appreciate the chance to be here. I, I think one of the things that's pretty interesting about uh, treatment, uh, especially for when working with first responders, is that there's, there's a lot of stigma about getting help. So um, most, most first responders, their, their perspective about treatment is pretty heavily stigmatized. Most of them don't have much comfort around discussing mental health, emotions, uh, even though they've had a number of reasons of why they need to get support, they've often had this barrier in the way that they don't often understand what it means to get help. Uh, there's some ego or some pride or there's, there's something pretty negative within our, our overall culture, but also within the first responder culture about raising your hand and saying, I'm not doing well. So for, for someone to push against and to do something in the face of that kind of stigma requires a ton of courage. And so um, that's, that's a big challenge because people think uh, traditionally when they go off to treatment or a first responder is asking help for his first time in 20, 30 years in the job, their perspective is I'm going to go to some place that is heavily indoctrinated with a particular view. Um, and that there is a kind of formal push and structure of who they're supposed to be, what they're supposed to feel and what they're supposed to do. And oftentimes it feels a little invasive. It feels a little pushy. Um, and oftentimes it, it just doesn't uh, align with some of their values or some of their beliefs about getting better. So um, oftentimes well, we see responders. What is their view of getting better? Uh, their, their, their view of getting better it kind of comes out of their, their, their deeper belief system, which is suck it up, yeah. bury it, push it down. And their, their ideas of healthy people are people that just don't have symptoms, just don't complain, don't, don't connect. And there is some idolized versions of the hero that often are kind of this kind of unrealistic, bulletproof, I'm going to be fine and, and nothing should hurt me. Um, so I think that's, there's a, there's a, there's a certain kind of pressure that exists culturally that, uh, if you are strong, that means you are, you know, 
there is no scratches, there's no scars, there's, there's nothing to show uh, after all the sacrifice and work you put into your career. And, and the reality is that's just not true and 100% of the first responders that we work with recognize that's true, but they still in some ways are pretty loyal to this idea of, of not asking for help, even, even though it, it costs them quite a bit. Yeah, so are you, are you seeing a difference in the younger generation of first responders versus the older in that particular view? I, I think there definitely is a difference in that view. Um, there, there is an older generation, uh, their heroes, their role models um, just didn't have access. They didn't have education. They didn't have a, a lot of things. And so they put their heads down. They worked hard. They kicked ass and they did great at a lot of things. Um, but oftentimes the consequences of, of you know, mental health challenges or substance abuse problems they really didn't show up on the job. They usually showed up in their retirement. Mm-hmm. And because uh, they were struggling silently for years and then are finally done with the job and they go home, um, they're seeing a lot more of the consequences of, of these cumulative effects, but the feedback doesn't get conveyed back into the system Yeah, because they're, they're already kind of disconnected from it. So they've, they've got a lot of information and insight to offer, but it just didn't go back to where it needed to be for the younger generation. So the, the younger generation, I think, does have an advantage. They've got some more awareness. Uh, they grew up in a culture where it, it probably was a little bit more comfortable for someone to kind of check in and share some things. Plus, the culture itself has grown up a lot more. There is more peer support. Um, in some areas, it's, it's still not even an option, but in lots of larger metropolitan areas they they do have uh, systems there are professionals and there are people around that are asking different kinds of questions than even just 10 years ago but even within the last five years or the last two years um, there's 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 more there's more investment going into these departments and i think that does change the culture a little bit yeah yeah i i've, I've seen it personally i mean uh, you're, I think you're right on the bigger metropolitan areas. I think the smaller areas are still suffering in silence, you know. Uh, and if if someone does reach out for help, it's a very hush hush, you know. Nobody knows I'm here. I'm just on a leave of absence, you know that that kind of deal. Yeah, and I think uh, as I, as I talk with our first responders and they have a chance and have permission to kind of check in about what it's like to get support or not get support in their local departments they often comment on their administration. You know, the, the supervisors, uh, the other folks that are connected to the municipality, they are the older generation. They, they are often the ones that have some beliefs or are pretty, um, you know, they, they believe and have reinforced that stigma around mental health or substance abuse. And so they are often unintentionally a barrier for a lot of the people in their departments and so there are some departments that finally have someone retire and some new blood comes in and they have some different ideas and that is when they start to see some changes within the uh the department yeah slow process yeah it is a slow process so going back a little bit to to why and kind of how we treat responders um uh Years ago, we had noticed that there is um, kind of a, an overall opinion or maybe there's an overall uh, kind of approach to, to mental health and substance abuse work that is 
um, not very individualized. Sometimes there is this uh, kind of pressure of, of people who are struggling, they need to conform and they need to uh, show up and they need to kind of acquiesce to, to whatever the treatment providers want from them. And, and we wanted to create something different. And part of what I think is uniquely helpful to our responders is that we wanted to create an experience for clients that come in that they want to have some ownership of. And I, I think it's, it's, it's unique for this particular culture because we work with uh, A-type personalities, people who have been organized, been in control, and they, they, they really respond well to tasks. And so part of what we wanted to create for them is an experience for them to create something unique and personal that they have some, some energy about. Um, I think we've heard lots of feedback from people over the years that have gone to a program, but it really was about them having to figure out how they conform to the program as opposed to creating a treatment plan, creating a, creating a lifestyle at home that they're actually excited about. So I, I think there's a, a challenge uh, for a lot of people that don't you know, trust that process. And so our, our hope was to create a program that was not only looking beyond the average symptoms, but looking at the bigger picture of what it means to be a healthy person, not just someone who's going to treatment to fix a particular behavior or to manage a particular symptom. Yeah, well, I think that what we talked about a little earlier on the mindset of, of responders when they come in is they're expecting you to fix them. Mm -hmm. And that's, they'll never have to do anything ever again. They, they won't have to... <coughs> continue treatment once they leave this this 30 45 60 day stay whatever it may be is it that's that means they're healed and they're going to live a happy life and that's not a reality right it, it comes from a decent idea yeah the, the reality is that the the medical model has been around for a long time and so uh, they professionally look at problems and think how do i go in fix it done move on to the next call the next challenge and when it comes to mental health, those moving parts just don't operate the same way. Yeah. So well, it does, does require them to really adjust some of their expectations and think of, of mental health closer to a chronic situation as opposed to a, a Band-Aid or some stitches or some things like that. Yeah, and I think your, your model is unique because, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, but when someone is coming in, they're coming here for that trauma. That's their big focus and they don't look at any other portion of their life, right? And so uh, tell me a little bit about what you're trying to do with them to, to make, help them understand that it's not just that traumatic experience or that, you know, something that they experienced on the job, but it is your whole life and your, you know, you're the whole picture of your health. Right. So I, I think it's super common for... Uh, someone to arrive at our doors and they've got a, a simple list, maybe a short list of, of what needs to be fixed so they can get back on the street or enjoy their retirement or whatever it might be, but they've got a short list. Most of the time it's someone told me I have some PTSD and I need to deal with it. Whether that's a spouse or whether that's someone in their department, possibly some peer support, that they've been asked to address some very specific things. And again, most of the time PTSD depression, suicidal ideation, uh, some anxiety, um, or substance abuse. Something has gotten out of hand and their ability to function has been damaged. 
And the hope is, how do I fix this just enough so I can function back at the level that I'm supposed to? So they, they come in with that list, and, and oftentimes they hear about our program, they hear that our goal is to look at the bigger picture, look at lots of different dimensions of their wellness, and we want to talk about their mindset, we want to talk about how they can shift their perspective and how they engage with their family, their friends, how they approach work. We want to talk about their resilience and their relationship with stress and how they can adjust some of those expectations and self-care. And oftentimes they'll say, well, that's nice, but, but I, I don't really need all of that. I, I just need a, a little help over here. I just really, I just need to make alcohol go away. And really, if we can do that, then I think everyone's going to be pretty satisfied. So their, their opinion of the process sometimes, um, keep in mind that they've been probably avoiding this process for some time. They, they feel like it's probably a little bit overkill. So that, that might be the first few days. Yeah. So after, after they arrive, after we do some clinical assessments, get to know them more, build some rapport with them, usually they start to acknowledge that they've been in survival mode for a little bit longer than they initially admitted. And that maybe there's a couple of things that probably needed some attention a while ago. They are remembering more of some conversations with family or friends or some feedback they got on the job. And they, they start to recognize that, yeah, there, there has been some infidelity in my relationship. Yeah, I might have an unhealthy relationship with pornography. Um, yeah, there might be some communication problems at home. I don't like the way I'm parenting. I don't like you know, my overall demeanor when I walk in the house after a long shift. I am becoming more isolated. I am having some sleep problems. I do depend a lot on, you know, power drinks or sleep medications or tobacco or other things like that. And the reality is I'm, I'm not the same kind of happy, fun, connected person that I was a while ago. And most folks don't recognize me anymore. So it, the, the conversation shifts, which is awesome because I think it takes a ton of courage to, to show up and to acknowledge that to not only some professionals, but also peers. The cool part about our culture is that, you know, someone who walks in, they're watching other peers that are acknowledging these kinds of things. And they're, they're being vulnerable and they're, they're kind of finally addressing the elephants in the room. Um, and then it, it is giving them permission to say, okay, I don't have to hide this stuff. That the shame and the fear and all these judgments I have about myself or other people who ask for help, ask for help they, they start to melt away a little bit and then we start to have them recognize that, okay, my life's not balanced. And in even a little bit further beyond that, a layer that they start to connect with over the course of this process is they start to recognize, I've been unhappy for a long time. I, I've made lack the fundamental skills to connect in my marriage or in my relationships. And I've noticed it for a while. Obviously, there's this uncomfortable moment where we kind of recognize we have become a little bit like our parents. And some of those traits we worked really hard to not develop, here they are, they're, they're having an impact on my relationships. Um, and also there's stop, stopping for the first time and recognizing there is a cumulative um, impact of years and years of not expressing emotions. And so the, the impact, and we have a lot of research nowadays that supports it, that their bodies are becoming more tired. Uh, the fatigue, uh, the tension, there's a lot of things physically that they're starting to show up and, and take away from their retirement, take away from their relationships. 
that they just didn't realize are connected to stress. So yeah, I'd say it's a, it's a pretty big realization for people to come in saying, here's my list, let's fix this, to realizing, wow, there's a lot of things I've been putting off. And then for this other layer to say, I need to keep on doing this kind of work for a while in order for my family to trust me again, for me to trust them again, and for us to rebuild and kind of create the life that I've always wanted, but I wasn't sure kind of how to do it. I didn't have a map to kind of put it all together. Yeah, and that's, I think, the reality of when someone reaches out for help, their their life is basically in shambles at that point, right? Like, especially with this population, they're, you know, they're on the verge of divorce, their kids aren't speaking to them, you know, there's some administrative things possibly going on at work, uh, and... Um, you know, so what what do you see from a like the spouse's point of view uh, when they come in when the client comes in? You know, what is the the spouse's point of view on what's going on with their loved one? Normally, is is there a lack of knowledge there too as well? Maybe some denial, or or are they realizing that like this person has been through a lot, and you know, this is the cause of the way that they're behaving? I, I think most spouses when they they finally have a chance to kind of speak up about it. Most most spouses don't for a while. Their, their concern is, and this happens all the times in family uh, systems, that there is usually a lot of guilt. That I have somehow, if I would have been a better spouse or partner or father or mother, whatever it might be, if I would have done a better job, they wouldn't be suffering. And so family, family uh, finally start to talk a little bit about that guilt. Um, they don't lead off with that because a lot of times they're talking about the anger. You know, I've been warning them, telling them, begging them, pleading them, and they've been doing that for years. And so when finally treatment happens, there's, there's a lot of resentment. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of frustration. Sometimes marriages have just gone too far and the neglect around the relationship is, is crossed, you know, crossed the line and there's, there's really no hope for that relationship changing, but they still have to figure out how to co-parent. So I'd say it's it's tough. Um, and for the first time, I, I have plenty of clients that say, well, I was drinking when I got home, so I didn't really see the damage. I didn't really hear my spouse. I didn't really see the impact that I was having on my kids. And you know, I blink and then five years later, here we are and they can't stand me. They don't invite me to things. They don't connect with me. I am too much work because I'm so either irritable or grouchy or whatever. And so family members come to us and for the first time probably start to acknowledge how sad they are, how discouraged they are, how angry they are. Um, and some of them uh, are, are, are super upset and, and they, they're not interested in really kind of healing anything initially. Yeah, they, just, they just want their loved one to just get better and someone else needs to take care of them because oftentimes spouses especially, they feel like, when when they watch their their responder loved ones struggling and in survival mode they often have to parent them or kind of manage them and so a lot of a lot of those partners are just kind of tired and want to break yeah well they're happy that they're just gone right out, right. out of the house or or whatever it may be it's a it's a rough letter when your your spouse writes the letter and says uh the house is just better with you not here yeah, talk about I you, since you brought up the letter. Talk. I think this is something that uh, is really important that 
you know, clients and families do here. Talk about that impact letter and, and what families are asked to do and then what the impact of that on the client is. Okay. I'd say they, so right after they arrive, uh, family members get a, a handbook, a general overview of what we do as a program, but we also encourage them to start working on what we call the reality letter. And the reality letter is a, is a chance for them to have permission to say, here's what it's like to be married to you or, or in a relationship with you. Um, this is, this is the kind of impact. Here's the reality that we as a family have felt. And part of it is, you know, the way we function. And part of it is based on how the first responder has functioned in their home. And so the reality is, yeah, we don't trust you. We don't, uh, we don't have a clue what's going on because you don't tell us what's going on. So this, this letter is, we've got some simple instructions for them. And it's not intended to be a shaming, demeaning, punishing sort of letter. But it is hopefully uh, a chance for there to be some clarity, some honesty, some directness. Um, our, our, you know, what we're trying to avoid is, you know, uh, someone working hard in the program. Someone comes all the way across the country, shows up in Utah, puts in the time, the effort, and as they're leaving, they find out all the things their family actually thought about them. So our, our hope is to set up this process, even though it's uncomfortable, um, and for the first time, it's usually uh, the, the most direct and um energy-filled sort of uh, conversation they've had in a while. Um, but I've, I've seen it happen a couple of different ways. I, I've had some families and, and partners that have written a reality letter that says, don't worry, you're doing great. You'll come home to a clean slate. Things will be just fine. And uh, I've had a, the, the responder and group uh, share this letter with peers, wanting to get some feedback, wanting to get healthy, wanting to move forward in their lives. And they get a letter like that that's very passive, and it's very avoidant, and not very honest. And they turn to the group and say, this is pretty sad because my family doesn't trust me with the truth. I don't know how to help them if they don't tell me what's really bothering them. And so they, they, they see it as a missed opportunity. And I've seen other families that, that get this reality letter instructions and they go for it and they say some pretty hard, pretty honest things and they lay it all out there with some detail that is no doubt emotional and it is provocative. But what it ends up doing is ends up being a very validating experience for the, the person receiving it. So I've seen a lot of responders that are like, I've been dreading this letter, but I got it. It's honest, it's accurate, and I'm glad they didn't lie. I'm glad they didn't just say it was fine. I've been punishing myself for a lot of things, and I've been worried about talking to them directly, but here we are finally in an honest conversation, talking about what's really going on for them and for myself. And so there is a sense of relief a lot of people carry on a ton of shame and a lot of baggage and they repress quite a bit of emotion. So this is finally a chance for the family side and for the responder side to finally get honest, put it on the table, and then the work forward from there actually seems a bit more productive. Yeah. No, I could see that. And, and I mean, once it's out on the table, I think that sense of relief you talked about, it's like, now we can actually move forward. Right. You know, those resentments have been voiced. doesn't mean they go away, right. but they've been voiced. Yeah. No, that's a cool, cool little project. So uh, 
you know, I think we, I want to talk on the trauma piece uh, and what Chateau does from that perspective. I think that most people expect, you know, hey, we do EMDR or, or whatever that may be. And that's, that's handling the trauma portion. I mean, what is, what is your thought? I know that you guys do provide that, but from, from an outside perspective, other than just that one therapeutical modality, what, what is Chateau doing to address those, you know, critical incidents and the things that are, the, the responders feel like they're there for? Right. The, the cool part about it is that uh, research supports um, the, a comprehensive approach. Um, I think there is this um, probably misunderstanding about trauma at times that um, talking it out in individual sessions is the only way I get, I get healthy again. And so what research supports is that there's a lot of things. Well, real quick, we'll talk about trauma. When, when people experience trauma, whether it's, it's primary trauma, where it's your, your personal experience, or whether it's secondary trauma, which again, first responders are uniquely exposed to, you know, intense and high quantities of this kind of, uh, of experience. They have front row seats to other people suffering as well. So what happens to us when, when we are experiencing trauma is that we have an inability for a variety of reasons to process what's, what's going on. And post-trauma, most people feel pretty disconnected and they have a hard time connecting with the past and they have a lot of fear about the future. So when someone's recovering from trauma uh, or post-trauma, most of them report, uh, again, just kind of struggling being in their head because they're either replaying old events or they're pretty hypervigilant, worried that some other negative event is going to slap them in the face and, and knock them out of their ability to function. So, so part of this process of healing is, is helping people actually get grounded. And research supports that it's not always about talk therapy. And this is what I think is unique about our program and a relief for responders that come to us is they realize that a big part of healing is just finding ways to get back to the present moment and not let those strong, intense memories or feelings dominate your life and dominate your decision making. And so when they get here, and as Danny touched on, they're, a big part of the program is just helping them come back to just being in their own body, being in their mind, and just coexisting with some of these thoughts, but actually just being present where actual decision-making gets to happen. And so whether that's the mindfulness, the meditation, whether that's yoga, the ice bath, different breathing techniques, all of those are non-quote-unquote therapy approaches that are very therapeutic that help people's overall emotional baseline start to go down a little bit. Because if you're storing all that tension in your mind and in your body, there are some pretty heavy negative consequences waiting for you. So part of the skills that they're learning while they're here is not just discussing emotions, it's getting into some skills that actually help you get back into the moment, into your body, and that is fundamentally very empowering. It's not just talking about your feelings, but it's you actually feeling safe here in the moment and you get to manage some of these thoughts and feelings. And if you don't have those fundamental tools, a lot of therapy is just not gonna help you. So after they get here, they recognize that a big portion of the program is very much addressing their trauma, but it's not in those traditional therapeutic one-on-one session sort of ways. Do you get maybe pushback from people at the beginning when they they realize that it's not just 
individual talk therapy the entire time. Yeah, and, and, and to be honest, it's just part of their education. Yeah. They, they come in with an uneducated idea of what trauma is, and so they think, I mean, keep in mind that their, their coping skills is pretty indicative of where their education is. So if I'm just always repressing emotions and self-medicating, then that probably should fix it, which means their definition of trauma is pretty underinformed. So the, the reality is there is a little bit of pushback and the, the cultural piece of the program, having another responder days and weeks ahead of you that's saying, I had my doubts, I wasn't sure, hang in there, give it a try, that ends up winning people over because they just need their own experience with it. It's yeah. not just what the textbook says to do, or it's not what's with a professional that you're still not sure if you trust yet is recommending. This is peers ahead of you saying, give it a try, hang in there. And responders trust responders. They do. And so that, that ends up having a huge impact. And so mentors guiding you uh, gives enough external motivation to help you try some of the, dis, you know, kind of hang in there while you are uncomfortable in these new skills. So yeah, we see a lot of folks that come in, try it, and recognize there really is something to this. And, and it's trial and error. But the cool part about trial and error is that you get to have your own experience and you get to own some of this stuff. And so our goal is not that you adopt every meditative practice that we you know, uh, expose you to. Our goal is to say, have an experience, here's six different ideas, try them out because when you're home on a call or you're in your driveway struggling with all sorts of thoughts and feelings, you need something right now to help manage yourself, manage some of this trauma response that you might be having. And you need to do it in something that you trust. And so you have to have an experience with these tools. Yeah. So I think, I think that foundation is huge for people to understand that there is uh, their own particular way that they trust, they can get grounded. And then they're actually a lot more open-minded and available to do some of the other therapeutic work. So EMDR, um, ART, uh, brain spotting, all of those are eye-related or uh, they, they integrate the use of eye movement to help access a part of their brain and begin to discuss and unpack and reprocess some of the events that have been haunting them and impacting their ability to function. So uh, as well as talk therapy and just kind of telling your story, finding some support, finding some validation, there's some really cool things that get to happen on the quote-unquote therapeutic level. But really what this is about is about making, uh, helping you feel confident that when you are faced with another traumatic event or another uh, you know, intrusive memory or nightmare, you have the ability to manage you and to regulate all of these different things you're experiencing. And that, that is important for responders. It's important for all of us as adults. But I think that message of you don't always need therapy. You, you're going to have a whole toolbox full of things by the time you leave that you've had experience with and you get to figure out how they actually adapt to your lifestyle at home in a way that you're excited about. Because if you're not excited about it, you're not going to use it and go to treatment. It might just be an exercise for somebody else. But if you actually connect with some of these skills, the chances are you're going to use them at home, you're going to tell your friends about them, and you're actually going to make a difference in your life. No, totally. And, and I think I wanted to, while, while you're touching on some of the, the non-therapeutical things, I want to shift over to Danny and... Uh, Danny, I know this has kind of been one of your pet projects, but I want to talk a little bit about neurofeedback and kind of what you've seen the benefit be. Well, first off, why you why you brought it into Chateau, 
uh, and kind of what you've seen the impact of neurofeedback treatment on on responders sure well uh, when we started learning about neurofeedback and started studying it and looking at the evidence around it we realized really quickly that we have to have this part of our offering uh, so we have a couple neurofeedback machines and we want our clients to be doing a, at least one neurofeedback session a day that's our goal um, and the cool thing about it is it's, it's really just brain training and it's very subtle they go and cook themselves up to a few electrodes on their their head that's monitoring their brain activity and it's about a 30 minute session and it's really just training their brain to be able to stay in a kind of steady confluence so that it's not getting distracted uh, it's not getting um, you know whether it's it's urges or um, distractions it's kind of your brain can operate really erratically uh, but it's teaching it just to stay in balance and a client goes and does a session they're not usually going to recognize the benefit immediately although we've had some who had one who was just who had less restless leg and arm syndrome and he was shaking all the time and after the first session that completely went away but usually it's a little bit more subtle where after a little while where they're able to train their brain so it's not getting distracted it's not getting uh, pulled in in different directions over time some of the things that they're struggling with start to go away. For instance, I had one who, uh, a police officer from LA who been a cop for 26 years, and he told me that in that 26 years, uh, since he started being a cop, he couldn't go into a convenience store or a, a, a grocery store without, um, without waiting for the other shoe to drop. He was in a state of hypervigilance. He would look at people as threats, wondering what's about to happen, and just ready for for any eventuality, but it made anywhere he went kind of uncomfortable because he was just, he was in a heightened state of alertness. And after doing this, these, these sessions, for the first time he was able to go into a Walmart and enjoy shopping, think about what he was looking for and not be waiting for whatever was about to happen, happen. He also, for the first time in that, since he became a cop, was able to sleep through the night without having nightmares had other people who have had some traumatic brain injuries who were able to start reading again. Some who had these kind of intense phobias um, when they walk into a room, uh, those start to dissipate. But the, the thing that really convinced us when we saw it, the, the benefit when somebody is struggling with like a, an addiction like alcohol and they couple neurofeedback with therapy, the success rates go up exponentially. Um, and so making sure that we're providing that for our clients while they're here uh, and just retraining their brain, helping them to calm their, their thinking down and not get so distracted and uh, get their, their thoughts pulled in each direction and, and minimize those urges greatly improves the success rates. Yeah. And so what do you think people are have ever heard of it or are open to it immediately when they come in or are you seeing you know a pushback of like i don't want these things hooked up to my brain uh i i think uh, a lot of people haven't heard of it it's been around for some time it's it's getting more accessible before the technology required that you have to have real specialists hook you up and be monitoring it but the technology has improved such that it's becoming more uh more available but most of our clients who who come in uh, are, are willing to do whatever it's going to take. And so they're willing to hook themselves up and, and to go do it. They recognize pretty quickly how valuable it is. Uh, so we're, we're seeing real great success rates with it and seeing people going home and wanting to continue on with it. But the cool thing about it is 
you don't necessarily need to continue that training to have the benefit. As you train your brain to be able to stay within that confluence, uh, the benefits exist well after you're done doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And so what, what is the, the exact, like, what's the length of a session? You know, what, what is being processed? Is it, you know, images? Is it sounds? You know, what's, what's going on during that session? Sure. So, uh, the system that we use, it's, it's what's called a dynamical system where it is taking real time readings of what's going on and it's responding based off those readings. So a session is about 33 minutes long. They hook themselves up to five different electrodes on their head which is monitoring their brain activity. And then they put some headphones on and they're just listening to music. They can draw, they can read, they can uh, lay back and close their eyes. And as their, as their brain frequency kind of deviates from the norm that it's in, uh, you get a little glitch in the music. And it's operating on a subconscious level. You don't have to pay attention to the glitch, but all it's doing is it starts to deviate from that frequency. It's just saying, hey, pay attention. <coughs> And it teaches you just to, to keep that back in balance. We don't realize all the time when we're getting distracted, when we're having that kind of erratic behavior in our brains, but it's just alerting you to it. And it's training the brain to just pay attention, to keep it in balance. Uh, and, um, uh, and so that session lasts about 33 minutes. Uh, people start to recognize the benefits after about five sessions, but uh, or 20 sessions where you really start to hit the sweet spot, but getting 20 to 30 sessions if someone's here for a 30-day period is is where you really see the, the benefits. Awesome. Thank you, Danny. I uh, I think that neurofeedback is, is going to keep excelling in popularity over the next couple of years, and uh, it has been just a, an awesome addition to, to what you guys offer. Uh, ben, I wanted to jump back over to you and ask you something that I think a lot of people are interested in, and that is the discharge portion. Like what what you're seeing people come back to and maybe how you prepare them for going back home. Because, you know, I, I know that there's a 30-day minimum requirement for Chateau, but in, in the grand scheme of people's lives, that's a pretty short period, right? And, and when they when they come in, they think that it is... The longest thing that they'll ever do in their life and uh you know they blink their eyes and they're done and they you know talk about it at the end which was like it was so fast you know and so uh talk a little bit about what you're trying to prepare people for uh and you know maybe some of the struggles that they're you know they're gonna face when they leave yeah i think that's a that's a big challenge and it's for sure top two questions that i get from family you know, what, what can we do to support them, but what are we really getting ready for? So I, I'd say that, um, well, it goes back to our model. You know, part of, part of people coming into this process, they are in survival mode. Oftentimes we kind of refer to it as kind of tunnel vision, and they don't, they don't really know what's going on in the big picture of their lives because they're out of balance, pretty, pretty apprehensive, pretty defensive, pretty guarded, and so they're not really in any kind of preparation or prevention mode at all. So helping them expand that view beyond just that tunnel vision is, is a portion of our job. But even as early within their first week, we, we start having the conversation of, okay, what, what does life look like afterwards? So we, we've got a six-dimensional model. and we, we ask them to start assessing and considering uh, strengths and weaknesses in their emotional, mental health, their physical health, 
their family system that they're in, what resources you have there, your spirituality, how you find your purpose and meaning, uh, how you manage your ego, what, what motivates you internally, um, their core relationships, how healthy are they, what assets or, or deficits do they have in that area, and then just the day-to-day -day skills, like practically speaking, how well do you function and, and how are you going to kind of maintain that balance that we're, we're going to be finding over the course of, of treatment. So the, the conversation towards the end of the program is, cool, we've exposed you to a lot of different tools, a lot of different ideas in each of these six different dimensions. We found some pros and cons. We've identified some things that you are excited about uh, or, or things that really do have a big impact on the rest of your life. And we've already started to get some commitments and some ideas about change. So what, what we've created, our, our particular system is called the Self-Leadership Plan because it's not just about uh, substance abuse. It's not just about um, you know, abstinence from a particular behavior or a substance. We are talking about having a comprehensive plan of how you're going to do your self-care in each of these areas of your life. And uh, we start to you know, basically ask some tough questions in each of these areas. And everyone who comes to the program, their job is to say, here's what I see. This is what I want to do different. And this is what I'm going to have to do within each of these dimensions of my life in order to stay healthy. And so uh, it really requires a, a shift in the expectations. A lot of times people come to treatment thinking, how do I get rid of stress, for example, right? And, and it's not uncommon for people to think, well, the best way to get rid of stress is to avoid everything that triggers my stress, or I just need to control everyone and everything that could potentially influence my stress levels. And, and those two systems have worked exactly the way they work, and that's why they're here. <laughs> Is that people depend on avoidance or control, and because they are so uh, committed to those particular ideas, they end up realizing that people in their relationships don't want to be controlled, or they don't want to be avoided. So we're trying to help them figure out what does balance look like moving forward in each of these areas now that you've got some more skills, some more insight, hopefully a new mindset, but also some different expectations. And so we are helping them anticipate that there's gonna be hard days and tough moments. There's gonna be moments where you regress back into behavior that does not work very well, but it's familiar to you and, and you kind of are uh, stuck in a rut in some ways and it's gonna take some time to get out of it. So part of what we're doing is helping to manage some of those expectations uh, we want to manage those expectations with the family as well and say, hey, there's going to be rough days and we've got skills for those rough days, but let's put together a plan of what are those little red flags that you didn't notice before you came here and how do we help manage some of these triggers or challenges or setbacks while they're still small and manageable and not just hide, not just avoid and not just you know work extra shifts so you don't have to deal with it. Um, so what we want them to do is put together a plan that says, this is how I'm going to strengthen my mental health. This is how I'm going to prevent misunderstandings in my relationships. This is the kind of boundaries I'm going to put together when it comes to my family. Or these are the kinds of things I can do while I'm at work that don't require therapy, that don't require <coughs> these things. And so they put together basically this plan and our hope is that they can understand the plan, believe in it, connect with it and get some feedback from us about the quality of that plan. And then our goal is for them to teach that plan, 
and to convey those messages to peers here in the program. Hopefully we can, uh, you know, point out some, some blind spots, point out some areas that are still really not strong as much as they need to be. Um, but also our goal is to have them teach this plan to their families, teach this plan to people that might be on their peer support team because they need to own this plan. So we've had some awesome experiences with people who are putting together this pretty comprehensive uh, collection of all the different insights and skills they've used here in the program. And they're starting to make some verbal commitments to people that matter. And when, when we get people to make some verbal commitments, the chances of them following through and actually showing up for appointments, going to support groups, connecting with people, putting down some of those walls and some of those defense mechanisms that they had, we see the, the chances of success going way up if they have a plan that they like, recommendations they're following, and they've taught that plan to other people. Even though it may not be perfect, we see people actually putting together some real momentum. So when they go home, the reality is that their family and their peer support can say, three months from now, I still see you're doing these kinds of things. Or you know what? You're not doing those things anymore. And that's a problem. How do we get back on track? And that's, that's the human experience, right? We're all going to struggle. We're all going to, um, you know, have good and bad days when it comes to motivation. We may or may not use some of these skills. We may not get enough feedback. So the, the process of making sure that we put time and energy and, and repetition into some of these skills, that's when people have the most success long-term. It's just trial and error, practice and skill and repetition with some of these new things they've acquired. And when they do that at home, we get great feedback. When they don't do it at home, the family starts to get pretty nervous. But they have a plan for when things aren't going great. They have a plan for when things are going awesome. And uh, we're, we're helping the family kind of adapt to this new system. Yeah. Well, and I think, Danny, you and I have talked about this before, but, you know, what do you think some of the struggles are for responders going home? You know, they, they don't, it seems like they don't have the same options that a civilian does when leaving treatment. Yeah. Well... Typically, when, when people are leaving treatment, they go back and they, they go into some, some step-down levels of care. They go to day treatment or intensive outpatient program. Uh, they attend some social support groups, some different fellowships. Oftentimes, when first responders are going home, they're going back into their community, into the community where they work, You know, the, the people who they interact with on a professional level. They don't feel comfortable going to a day treatment program or an intensive outpatient program or even some of the support groups because... They feel like it, it kind of compromises their position in the community. So being able to find some opportunities that are going to, they're going to be able to interact with peers who are in that same space as them, who are, are in recovery or who are trying to, to improve themselves or address some of these issues can be a real challenge. So trying to find those options, we, we've had to get creative. Uh, we've used some different kind of telehealth options that are specific for first responders so that they can they can be engaged with other people who are kind of in that same phase of life. Uh, but a big part of succeeding is that connection and that community and making sure that you're going home and you're, you're not isolating. Uh, they're going back into some of the same environments that got themselves into to trouble in the first place. So figuring out how we get that support can be a real challenge for first responders. Yeah, and I think that's the cool, one of the couple of cool things that Chateau's done has 
you know, opened up telehealth, you know, uh, alumni meetings and, you know, things like that, trying to, trying to get people connected and stay connected, uh, with, cause I mean, what would you say? 90% of your clientele are from out of state. Yeah. 90% are out of state about, uh, uh, 70, 70, 75% are first responders. Uh, we were treating mostly folks over the age of 30, but yeah, one of the things that we've put together, especially as we, as we entered the pandemic, we realized pretty quickly, a lot of the things that we were recommending just weren't available to people when they got home. So we have, um, uh, uh, uh alumni meeting once a week. We also have just an alum or a first responder support group once a week over telehealth. And then we're working really hard to try to plug them into local resources. Some where we some areas we know really well. Sometimes we get someone from an area we don't. So we got to get pretty creative about figuring out what resources are there and then how do we plug them into those. Yeah, and that's and especially the smaller the area they live, mm-hmm. the less resources they have. Uh, and so they have to you have to kind of open up the playbook a little bit to try and figure out what kind of support cuz I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, Ben, but I think a lot of people, not just first responders, they, they when they're doing a discharge plan, they prepare for certain things and they feel or they're, they're ready for those things to happen. But then things that they thought weren't going to be difficult or weren't going to be an issue come up and then they have to reflect back on that self-leadership plan. Does that sound? Yeah, I think so. I, I think it's. Um, but I'd say that's just part of their evolution. Well, the human experience you talked about earlier, you know. Yeah, I, I think the challenge is sometimes the, the problem solving when it comes to mental health is pretty rigid and people don't have a lot of flexibility. And so part of what's so, owner, so, so important about them having some ownership in this process is that creative thinking and how to solve this. It would be nice if, if people were coming to you, knocking on your door, providing golden opportunities for you to share your thoughts and feelings just in the way you like it. <laughs> But the reality is that that may not be really the spot where your family is or your peer support uh, or your department is, for that matter. And so recognizing that, all right, I need to adjust my expectations and figure out what are some other ways that I can really still get my needs met and how do I communicate and how do I work with someone to do that. And if we stay in our heads all day, we usually don't do that very well. But our, our hope is to help them own their plan, get creative, ask for what they need and to really engage in, in, in something different. And most of the time it works pretty well. And there's, you know, no doubt there are moments where people still have kind of an expectation of, of their recovery or their mental health just being done for them by someone else or something else. And it's uh, a real challenge in our culture that we still have people who don't trust the process as much as they might trust a, a pill or a quick fix or some of those kinds of things. And so overcoming some of those perspectives takes a lot of time. And for some people at the end of the, well, not some people at the end of the day, these are adults who get to decide their own path. They get to create their own thing. And sometimes that's great news in mental health. And sometimes that is terrible news and that they are going to keep on doing what they believe in. And we, we do not have the amount of influence we all wish we had. Yeah. No, no, thank you. Uh, before we wrap this up, I really wanted to touch on one thing with you, Danny. So Chateau is an FOP-approved uh, facility. Uh, what, does that, what does that exactly mean? Uh, so the, the, the Health and Wellness Committee for the Fraternal Order of Police came out and vetted our program uh, 
looked under the hood, kicked the tires, and made sure that we were not only culturally competent, but that we had the, the systems in place and, and the expertise to be able to treat their population. The FOP is uh, serious about getting their people help and making sure that they're showing up at places that are going to be able to provide that. So uh, we're one of, I think, five or six currently that are approved, uh, recommended or endorsed and approved by the FOP, and, uh, uh, and as well as other departments around the country uh, as, as somebody who is able to treat their members. Yeah, because you are treating every aspect of first responders, correct? Yeah, first, uh, not only police, firefighters, uh, we see a lot of EMTs, veterans, uh, as well as, as ones that aren't technically first responders like nurses, but our program is really well designed to, to be able to help them. Awesome. No, thank thank you. And uh, I appreciate both you guys for, for taking the time and talking about Chateau and uh, what it offers. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Austin. Appreciate being here. Thank you for listening to this segment of No One Fights Alone. No One Fights Alone is sponsored by... Chateau Recovery is a 16-bed treatment facility nestled in the foothills of the Wasatch Mountains in Midway, Utah. Chateau's First Responder Resiliency Program is designed to treat the unique challenges and issues that first responders encounter in the course of their careers. Chateau's comprehensive and highly individualized approach to treatment addresses more than just the presenting issues. It addresses the why. Each of their seasoned, trauma-trained, and culturally competent therapists utilize evidence-based, specialized therapies to treat trauma at its core and enable clients to begin the healing process while developing a resilient and healthy relationship with stress. Chateau Recovery is trusted by departments and agencies from around the country to treat responders and veterans. In fact, it is one of only a handful of facilities nationwide that is vetted and approved to treat members of the Fraternal Order of Police. For more information, or to speak to a representative, go to chateaurecovery.com or call 888-507-5031. No One Fights Alone is also sponsored by First Responder Trauma Counselors. First Responder Trauma Counselors are subject matter experts in proactive behavioral health care for frontline workers through their National Peer Support Academy. This 40-hour all-badges, all-uniforms, and all-scrubs educational experience helps to create caring, honest, and empathetic peer support relationships with your fellow frontline workers. The FRTC National Peer Support Academy is taught by actual first responders who have gone back to school to become culturally competent, licensed behavioral health clinicians that teach from lived experiences, not just theories from books. This fast-paced, immersive educational academy will not just change your life, it will help you save the lives of others. For additional details, visit 991overwatch.org or call 970-222-419-3. This could be the most life-changing academy you'll ever attend.